The scripture passage this morning for Pastor Charlie's sermon is Hebrews 10, chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure." Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offerings according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this powerful word today, and I pray that you would help us to hear it well. I pray that you would highlight for us the things that you would have us understand and the things that you would have us apply to our lives and I pray, Father, that you would make Jesus look as he is this morning, infinitely glorious and beautiful and satisfying and sufficient to meet all of our needs. So, Lord, we bring ourselves before you just as we are, and we pray that Christ, again, that he would show himself to be enough. I pray for this, I trust for this, I hope for this, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 is a really interesting passage. It summarizes several central ideas from the last several chapters. And in fact, by my count, the author here gives us seven specific ideas, and he references 18 specific verses in the letter of Hebrews that he has already mentioned. So just so you understand what I'm saying and kind of what's happening in these first few verses, I put up here on the PowerPoint for you, and let me just read out for you the ideas and the texts that are reiterated in the first four verses here. He mentions the law of Moses as a shadow of things to come. That's from Hebrews 8.5. He mentions the good things that are about to come. That's Hebrews 1.4.2.5.6.5. He mentions the sacrifices that have to be continually offered over and over again by the priests. That's Hebrews 9.25. He mentions the perfection of those who draw near to God. Hebrews 2.10, He mentions the act of drawing near to God. Hebrews 4.16, He mentions the act of being cleansed from sin. Hebrews 9.14, 9.22, And finally, or 9.23. If you try to look up Hebrews 9.32, you'll be confused. There is no 9.32. And then he finally mentions the blood of bulls and goats, which is drawing on 9.12, 9.13, 9.19, 9.22. So you get the point. Seven ideas, 18 different texts referenced in only four verses. And it just makes you wonder, what's going on here? Is the author up to something specific? And I think absolutely he's up to something specific 
And here's what I think it is. He wants us to know that the truths that he's been teaching over the last few chapters are massively important, no matter what we think about them. No matter if we're bored with them or excited about them, whether we agree with them, disagree, whatever. He wants us to understand these things are massively important for life in Christ, and he wants us to remember them. So he's not afraid to repeat himself. He's not afraid to say over and over again what he's already said over and over again because he's trying to help you. He's trying to help me to drive this into our brains that love to forget things, right? We love to forget, and he's saying, remember, 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 remember the things that Christ has done. For those first readers, this was really crucial because they were tempted to go back to that first Jewish system and embrace a system of sacrifices that could no longer or, or never ever could take care of their sins. And so through the author, Christ is pleading with them and saying, let go of those former sacrifices and come embrace me, the one all-sufficient sacrifice. 15 or, or 1,400 years of the blood of bulls and goats could not meet your needs, but I am here to meet your needs. And so the author, Christ, through the author, is pleading with those first readers, and he's pleading with us too. I've said to you many times that we're not in, in any temptation, really, to go back to a Jewish way of life. There's none of us today that are, 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 are tempted to go out by a lake and sacrifice a bull for our sins. I don't think so anyway. Probably not likely. But every one of us is tempted to walk away from Christ in one way or another, aren't we? Aren't you, isn't your heart pulled by other things in this world and in your flesh to walk away from the Christ who has been so gracious to you? And so the author in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, he is not afraid to repeat himself. He's saying, beloved, I mean these things. The stuff matters. I warned you in chapter 6, please pay close attention to what I'm about to say in 7, 8, 9, and 10. And now at the beginning of 10, I want to remind you again just how important these things are. He wants us to know this. This is kind of the summary of what I'm seeing in these verses. There is only one all-sufficient sacrifice in this life, and his name is Jesus Christ. There is only one satisfy, all-satisfying inheritance in this life. And his name is Jesus Christ. And there is one, only one all-consuming hope that will not disappoint in this life. And his name is Jesus Christ. There are many ways that seem right to a man or to a woman, but in the end, those ways lead to death. Christ alone is the one who will lead us to life. I do believe that's what these few verses are about. Now, having said that, I want to point out that as it is in other places of Hebrews, the author never merely repeats himself. He's always one of these guys who says what he's already said, but then he adds another piece that is crucially important, and if you're not paying attention, you might miss the other piece. So I thought of it this week as sort of this great and glorious mountain that we could call the glory of Christ, and just imagine that there's a road that goes round and round and round this mountain, and this is like the author of Hebrews. He's taking us round and round and round again up this mountain called the glory of Christ, and every time he comes around, he points out things that he's already said, he points out things that we have already seen, and then, he see, and then he says, look up, look farther, because there's more. So remember what I've said, but look, look, behold, there is more. And his goal is that by the end of chapter 13, we will come to the peak of this mountain called the glory of Christ, 
And you and I will see something more of the height and depth and width and breadth of Jesus like we have never seen. And hopefully it won't just be a mind thing, but hopefully it will impact the way that we're living our lives. And so with that in mind, the author repeats himself and then he adds something crucial to the mix in verses five through seven. But before I get to the new thing, let me say a few more things about verses one to four. So let's read again verses one and two. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year in the Greek, year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. So in other words, in that old system of sacrifice, it didn't work, and we know that it didn't work because it did not perfect or cleanse the conscience of a single worshiper in 1,400 years, including the 83 men who served as high priests from the days of Aaron to the days of Jesus. Nobody's conscience was perfected, and if anybody's conscience was perfected, there would have been a sign of this, and the sign would have been that the sacrifices would have stopped because they wouldn't, they wouldn't be necessary anymore. That many bulls, that many goats would have been enough and we would have been done. But since the sacrifices never stopped, it shows the impotence of that former system. If, the, if those sacrifices would have worked, the conscience would have been cleansed. There would not have been any remaining guilt for sin. And so look in verses 3 and 4. The author adds, but these, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, or more literally, a remembrance of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So what he's saying is that not only could those old sacrifices not take our sins away, but they did the opposite thing. They actually served to remind us of sins, and the same thing happens for anybody on this earth in any other religion besides Christianity that tries to deal with their sins through their good deeds. What all, no matter what they do, no matter what sacrifices they bring, those sacrifices cannot clean the conscience because the conscience always knows that the sin is greater than the sacrifice. You would think that when somebody brings an offering to God that God himself has commanded for sin, that they would feel free, that they would feel forgiven, that they would feel hopeful, that they would feel joy-filled. And maybe for a time, those ancient worshipers did. Maybe for a time when they came to the temple and offered their bull, offered their goat, maybe they felt free for a time, but it didn't take long until their conscience was racked again because they knew the sacrifice wasn't enough before they had got home. They had already sinned again in thought, in word, in deed. And so those sacrifices, they could never work. And the reason they could never work is because of what he says in verse 4. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It's impossible for this to happen. Look back, if you will, at chapter 9, verse 22. You'll see there quickly that the author says very clearly, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, right? Period and end of story. The Lord is God. He's the shot caller. He sets the rules. And God has said that sin is so serious that blood must be shed in order for that sin to be forgiven. And so in his grace, he gave the people the sacrificial system that they could shed the blood of animals in forgiveness for their sins. And for those of you who've been around a long time, you remember when we were back in Leviticus, 
Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. I'm sure you remember the whole entire sermon. I, I remember most of it. The key thing that kept coming up over and over again is, and they will be forgiven, 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 and they will be forgiven. This is God Almighty speaking, and He meant it. But even as He's speaking those words, He knows that the blood of a bull, the blood of a goat, can never take away sins. He knows that that blood is only a symbol of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ would one day make that would actually forgive sins. And so the former system didn't work simply because the blood was not sufficient. The blood was not enough. That system was, in the, in the long run, not actually a solution. It was only a copy and shadow of the things to come. 1,500 years of sacrifice, 1,400 years of sacrifice pointing to the one all-sufficient sacrifice who was to come. Now that leads us to verse 5. And right here, if you've been traveling through Hebrews with us, I wonder what you would do if, if you were to close your Bible right now and take out a piece of paper and a pen and write what you think the author of Hebrews is going to write next. I wonder what it is that you would write. So he's summarizing all this stuff, and basically he's saying the old system is deficient. Now verse 5, what's he going to say? Probably most of you who've been paying attention the whole time from chapter 1 would say that the author's going to say something about the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. So that old system wasn't working. Christ came in to abolish the old one and to establish the new one. And indeed, that would be a good guess because the author does go in that direction. However, this is the place where we're going around the mountain called the glory of Christ and he adds something new that we have not seen before. He quotes from Psalm 40 and he brings our attention to a a truth that is so important that it becomes the foundation of all the other truths. And so if you'll look with me now at verses 5 through 7, let's look what he says. This is coming from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said in the words of Psalm 40, 6 to 8, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. I wonder what you're thinking. What is the new idea that he's introducing here? Because that old system could never perfect those who sought to draw near to God through it, Christ humbled himself and he took on flesh and he came into this world. And when Christ came into this world at some particular time, he took the words of Psalm 40 as his own words. We've seen Christ do this in other places. On the cross, he quoted Psalm 22. There's many other places where Jesus takes the words of the Psalms as his own words. And here, the writer of Hebrews is saying that he did that with Psalm 40. And he prayed to his father and said, Father, I know that you commanded certain sacrifices but that you neither desire nor are you ultimately pleased with those sacrifices because, Father, they're only a sign and a shadow of the things to come. So Jesus knows that God did not despise the sacrifices he commanded. Rather, God longed for the fulfillment of the things to come. Jesus was the fulfillment of things to come. So rather than taking pleasure in all of those other sacrifices and bodies, if you will, the psalmist says, 
a body you have prepared for me. Words that Jesus took onto his mouth. Father, you're not pleased with all these things, but you have prepared a body for me. Now, some of you probably have study Bibles with you. Anybody got a study Bible? Let me just, I, I really do want to see how many of you have a study Bible. Put your hands up, please. Up. Okay, well, you, I just want to see how many of you. The rest of you have work to do after church. Um, For those of you who have a study Bible, look at your notes for verse 5 because there's something important there that I want to explain just because it will confuse you if you don't understand what's happening here. If you have a study Bible, down in verse 5, you'll see a note that's going to say something like that in the original Hebrew text for Psalm 40, verse 6, it actually says, ears you have dug out for me. Rather than a body you have prepared for me, it says, ears you have dug out for me. And I, I just want to say a few things about that so that we're clear about what's happening here. So let me, let me take us back in history. King David was the one who actually wrote Psalm 40. And when he wrote that psalm in the 900s BC, he wrote it in the Hebrew language. So now we have a Hebrew text of the Bible. About 500 years later, 600 years later, some people come along and they, and they translate the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language so that more people can read it. And this Greek translation is called the Septuagint. When those translators were taking Psalm 40 from Hebrew into Greek, they they did change the words from an ear you have dug out for me to a body you have prepared for me. Now why they did that, we don't know exactly. Some people think that they did it just to make it more sensible in in the Greek language. For instance, in English, we, we, we say from time to time, the like the idiom, like it's raining cats and dogs, right? You've heard this? If you were to say that to a Spanish speaker, they would probably look like, you, like, like, like you're a nutcase because like, what are you talking about? There are not dogs and cats falling out of the sky. It's an idiom. If you put it straight into somebody else's language, it just makes no sense. And so it's possible that the translators were just trying to make sense of the Hebrew in the Greek language. It's also possible that they saw something in those words, an ear you have dug out for me, and they just knew that it meant a body you have prepared for me. That's possible. Whatever their intention was, we don't know. What we do know is that the author of Hebrews chose to quote the Greek version and say, a body you have prepared for for me. So let me just take you down a little bit of a road here because no matter what the text is, an ear you have dug for me, a body you have prepared for me, it turns out that the meaning brings us to the exact same place. So let me take one at a time. If the original text is the right one and, and we should hear an ear you have dug out for me, then what this probably means is that God has prepared his chosen servants to hear his word and understand his word and obey his word all the days of his life. If you'll keep your finger in Hebrews and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 50, I want to show you a parallel text because I think this text summarizes well what's what's happening here. This is actually my, probably my favorite text for preaching ministry, but it is actually a prophecy about Jesus Christ. So Isaiah chapter 50, I'm going to look at verses 4 to 6. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. And here's the part to pay attention to. Morning by morning he awakens my, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. In other words, he digs an ear out for me. He prepares an ear for me. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious 
I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who would strike and my cheeks to those who would pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So if the text of Psalm 46 is right, if we should hear an ear you have dug out for me, what we're talking about here is a servant who is willing to listen and understand and fully submit to the will of his Father. We're talking about obedience is what we're talking about. That's the key word. This text is about obedience. Now what if the text really should say, a body you have prepared for me? Well, this ends up bringing us right back to the issue of obedience because the question has to be asked, Father, why did you prepare this body for me? And the answer to that question is, I prepared the body for you so that you would know and love and obey my will. So whatever the correct reading is, you have dug out an ear for me or you have prepared a body for me, we don't know what happened with the translational stuff there, but at the end of the day, they are both making the same point, that the obedience of Jesus is now what is on the table. And beloved, this is the additional thing the author adds. In verses one to four, he's circling around, showing us things he's already shown us, and then he says, now look up more, there's something else you really need to see. It is called the obedience of Jesus Christ. This is going to become huge over the next really couple of chapters. So please mark this. The obedience of Jesus is now what is on the table. And I know that because look at the next line. Turning back to Hebrews. If you look at chapter 10, verse 7, here's what Jesus says now to the Father. So you have not desired these sacrifices. That's not what your heart is about. You prepared a body for me. Chapter 10, verse 7. Then Jesus says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. O Father, you have decreed what my life should be about, and you have revealed your will to your prophets, and they have committed those things to paper, and you have committed other servants of yours to preserve the Bible century after century, and now, Father, you have prepared a body for me, and I have come, and I have read the sacred text and I have seen that it speaks about me. It tells of your will for my life. It tells what I should do with this body that you have prepared for me. And Father, I open my heart to you. I open my arms to you. I give my life to you. Behold, my Father, I have come to do your will. Your will is my delight. Your will is my command. Whatever you speak, I will do. Beloved, Jesus came in utter obedience. And that, by the way, is what obedience looks like. Obedience isn't just about following rules. Obedience is about having a heart for God that causes the person to surrender their life to God. And that's what Jesus did. And so as, G as the author takes us on this journey around the mountain of the glory of Christ, he reminds us of old things and then he takes Psalm 40 to say, now please focus your attention on the obedience of Jesus. And I know that he's trying to do this because look at verses eight and nine. Just watch how he... He's now kind of interpreting the psalm for us. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, and these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So verse 8 draws to our attention this tension that I was pointing out earlier that God commanded certain sacrifices, and then he says, I don't desire those sacrifices. So what's that about? If God is not pleased with the things he commanded, what could he possibly be pleased with? 
The answer comes in verse 9. He is pleased with one who has come to do his will. He's pleased with obedience, and it's not obedience in an abstract and general sense. The Father is pleased with the obedience of this Son who has taken on flesh, who has embraced the body that God has given to him, who has embraced the will that the Father has decreed for him and is willing to submit his life to the Father all the way to death on a cross. That's what is pleasing to God. All of those other sacrifices were simply pointing toward this moment. And now Jesus has come and now the Father is filled with delight. Filled with delight. And beloved, because Jesus obeyed his Father, look what happens at the end of verse 9. The obedience of Jesus caused the first covenant to be dissolved, annulled, with all of its legal requirements. And you should thank God for that. I don't know as Gentiles if we understand that if Christ did not dissolve that covenant, we would still be responsible for the terms and conditions of that covenant. We would still have to answer to God for these things. But in Christ, he annulled it by his obedience, and by his obedience, he established the second covenant. So by the obedience of Christ, the first is done away with, the second one is established. That might confuse some of you because a couple weeks ago, I made a very strong case that what annulled the first covenant and established the second covenant was the shedding of the blood of Jesus. I said that on the weekend that Christ was died and buried and raised again from the dead, that was the very weekend where the first covenant was officially and legally dissolved and the second covenant was officially and legally and eternally established. And that is absolutely true. It was the blood of Christ that caused the annulment and the establishment. Absolutely true. And guess what caused the blood of Christ to be shed? It was his obedient heart. It was his obedient heart. And so we're led to this idea. This is kind of the punch of the sermon today. This is the thing to really remember. It was the glad, submissive heart of Christ that made the awesome sacrifice. Please remember that. It was the glad, submissive heart of Christ that made the awesome sacrifice. The sacrifice was totally necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Because if the blood of Jesus was not shed, you and I would still be dead in our sins. There would be no hope for forgiveness. But it was his glad and submissive heart that caused him to make that sacrifice. And so it was the glad, submissive heart of Christ that made the awesome sacrifice. Just think with me for a moment about the power of obedience and especially Jesus' obedience. I'm going to contrast Adam and Jesus. The disobedience of Adam brought on the need for animal sacrifice. If it wasn't for his sin, that system never would have been inaugurated. The obedience of Jesus became the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, and his obedience trumped Adam's disobedience. The disobedience of Adam absolutely destroyed the communion between God and man, and between man and woman, and man and each other. It destroyed relationships. The obedience of Jesus Christ came and brought healing, it brings restoration, and it will ultimately bring about a fullness of communion with God that no one has ever imagined. The obedience of Christ trumps the disobedience of Adam. It is that powerful. The the disobedience of Adam destroyed our consciences before God because we were just so racked with sin. 
The obedience of Jesus absolutely cleans the conscience before God because he is enough to cover all of our sins. His obedience trumps Adam's disobedience. The disobedience of Adam, believe it or not, actually wreaked havoc in the natural world and caused all kinds of disarray. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, that the obedience of Jesus Christ is bringing about the reordering of the world because the Father has willed to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. The obedience of Christ has massively outpowered the disobedience of Adam. It has reversed the curse. Beloved, the obedience of Jesus is not a small thing at all. And so in the midst of his summary, the author points our attention to this And he wants us to focus on it. Later, he'll deal with the implications. For now, I just think he wants us to see this. It was the glad, submissive heart of Christ that made the awesome sacrifice. Focus on the obedience of God the Son before before God the Father. Focus on his humility. Focus on his submission. Focus on his heart before his Father. That was the key to the sacrifice and his obedience comes to mean much for us. Look at verse 10. You start to see the first just glimmer of what this really means for us in verse 10. And by that will, we have all been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's one of those little sentences. My my stepdad was about this tall, just a little guy. He used to love to say dynamite comes in small packages, you know. That, that's a small verse, and dynamite comes in small packages. In fact, that might be a nuclear bomb right there. That verse is so filled with meaning. I could preach a whole message just on that verse, beloved. Believe me, there's so much there. The awesome sacrifice of Jesus means that we have been sanctified forever and ever and ever. Everyone who believes in him by the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ becomes holy before the Father, So the father prepares a body for the son. The son submits his body to the father. The father strikes the body of the son as payment for sins. Those who believe in the son get all that the father has granted to the son. Because of his obedience, beloved, we can be free and we can be holy. I want to draw your attention to those words, we have been sanctified. In the Greek text, it's very interesting how this is phrased because in the Greek text, it literally reads, We have been sanctified, we are. So you have to hear Yoda at this moment saying this. We have been sanctified, we are. Mm -hmm. We have been sanctified, we are. We have been sanctified, we are. Very curious. The form of the verb for we have been sanctified is the same form of a verb that Jesus used when he said on the cross, it is finished. If you translated that really literally, it says it has been finished. It's a past tense word. But it's got such force, such power, such effect that it's translated in the present tense. It is finished. And that's the same kind of verb here. The words we have been sanctified could rightly be translated. We are forever and ever sanctified because of the powerful effect of what the obedience of Jesus did for us. This is why the author in the Greek combines this past tense word with the present tense and says, we have been sanctified, we are. We have been sanctified, we are. This is a forever reality on the basis of what Jesus has done. Beloved, that is just part of what his obedience has won for us. So yes, it was the glad, submissive heart of Christ that made the awesome sacrifice. And now this, 
because of his obedience, we get holiness. His obedience has become our holiness. It's just a huge idea. And I pray to God that you're hearing that. His obedience becomes our holiness. Just think about your life. Think about the sins that you struggle with. Think about your efforts to overcome certain habits and patterns in your life. And just know this, no matter what effort you try to give, you will never be able to overcome in your own flesh. No matter how long you try, you will not be able to climb that mountain of freedom from sin. But I've got good news for you. Christ did it all. And if you just simply believe in him, his obedience becomes your holiness. So yes, God wants us to walk in holiness, but we do that by trusting in what Jesus has already done for us. There's nothing we can do to add to what he has done. So in closing, let me just say, uh, if, the, if the good Lord is willing and a creek doesn't rise, we're going to have a baptism service in a couple of hours here. And, and for those of you who are going to be baptized, I just want to talk to you for a minute, and I, I've been praying for you over the last couple of days, and it just, just strikes me deeply that this is the text that your Father has given to you for your day of baptism. Please mark it down. Like, write it in your journal. Write it in your Bible. Never forget this. Baptism day, Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. Please don't forget this. His obedience becomes your holiness. Let me tell you something about your baptism. Your baptism will not make you holy. In fact, there is a sense in which your baptism will do nothing for you. The only thing it's going to absolutely do for you is get you wet for a little bit. Baptism is a sign and a symbol of something Christ has already done for you. And baptism is a way of saying, I am embracing that, I am entering into that, I am trusting in what Christ did for me. I'm not doing anything for him, I'm trusting in what he has done for me. Jesus Christ came into this earth and he took on flesh, he lived a perfectly obedient life, and then in obedience to his Father, he died on the cross for our sins, and three days later, or at least on the third day, he was raised up from the dead, and he lives now forever with God his Father, interceding for those who would believe in him. So when you're baptized, what you're saying is, I believe that, and I accept that. I know that nothing else will do to cover my sins, but I trust in Jesus. So we put you under the water, and this is a symbol that you're being buried with Jesus, and your sins are being buried with him. The record of your sins are being canceled. It's not about the baptism. It's about what Jesus did for you. This is just a symbol. And when you come up out of the water, it's a symbol that you're being raised to life in Christ again, to live anew, not by your own flesh, but by faith in him who's already done everything for you. So please, if you're getting baptized today, please mark this down. Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. This is God's text for you on your baptism day. And remember also Romans chapter 6. It, it summarizes what I just said about baptism. And remember... Remember, remember that your baptism is not about what you're doing for Christ. It's about embracing what he has done for you. And so, with everybody else that's here today, I just want to say very quickly, maybe you're here today and you have yet to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in the way that I have just described. Perhaps you have never trusted that Jesus is a sufficient sacrifice to take away all of your sins. I want to encourage you this morning, open up your heart and believe in him. Open up your arms and embrace him. He truly is enough. He is the one sacrifice that will free you from all of your sins. Let's pray. My Father, 
You did that for me in 1986. You freed me from a, a mountain of sin so high I never thought I could overcome them. And I couldn't, but you did in Jesus Christ. And I thank you so much for all that you have done for me. And I thank you for what you have done for those who are going to be baptized today. I thank you for what you've done for those of us here who have been baptized a long time ago. And I thank you for what you will do for those who are in this room and need to hear the good news of Jesus and need to believe in you. Please, Jesus, I trust in your ability to open up hearts, and I pray that you would do that now. Now, Father, as we rise to sing to you, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would show us how the obedience of Jesus ends up in our holiness. So please help us now by the Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name.